It was a godless sound, one of those low-keyed, insidious outrages of nature, which are not meant to be. To call it a dull wail, a doomed drag whine, or a hopeless howl of chorused anguish and stricken flesh without mind, would be to miss its most quintessential loathsomeness and soul-sickening overtones. Was it for this that Ward had seemed to listen on that day he was removed? It was the most shocking thing that Willett had ever heard, and it continued from no determinate point as the doctor reached the bottom of the steps and cast his torchlight around on lofty corridor walls surmounted by cyclopean vaulting and pierced by numberless black archways. The hall in which he stood was perhaps fourteen feet high to the middle of the vaulting and ten or twelve feet broad. Its pavement was of large chipped flagstones, and its walls and roof were of dressed masonry. Its length he could not imagine, for it stretched ahead indefinitely into the blackness. Of the archways, some had doors of the old six-paneled colonial type, whilst others had none. HPPodcraft.com What is this place? It seems unnerving and creepy. I don't know what this place is. In fact, I don't I don't know who you are. Let me clear that up for you. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh. Who are you, my friend? Oh, I'm Chris Lackey, and I happen to have a, a job. I'm I'm the host, co-host actually, of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm also the, the host. <laughs> co-host actually <laughs> here at hppodcraft.com that is an excerpt from the case of charles dexter ward a story by hp lovecraft well a novel really or a novelette i don't know what you want to call it we've been covering it boy have four we. episodes yeah we have and this is our fifth when we last left off dr willett who's our sort of protagonist who's been putting everything together went out to Charles Dexter Ward's bungalow in the Patuxent Valley. He and Charles Dexter Ward's father went into the basement. They found a little porthole that went down into the labyrinths that were created by Joseph Kerwin back in the 18th century. And Mr. Ward got a little sick because of the smell that came out of the little porthole they found. It smelled terrible. So he had to get in a cab and beat it. Dr. Willett got his stuff together, went down stairs and stairs and stairs and stairs down into this awful subterranean passage, and, and that's where we found him in that opening quote. Yeah. That pretty that's much actually, yeah, you're on it, man. He goes down there, and uh, what he's trying to find is Charles' library. Charles had this really extensive occult library and historical library. He had it at his father's house, but then they moved it over to this place in the Patuxent Valley, right. but it wasn't upstairs. So that's kind of what he's been focusing on. It's like, well, wherever where this library is, that's probably where I'm going to find a lot of information and also hopefully a laboratory the place is is vast as we heard in that opening mm-hmm. quote which the reading was by the way was by our friend matt foyer once again great job man he sees all the passages they're really filled with a kind of ingenuity you know there's fireplaces on the inside how mm-hmm. the heck they're venting out into the outside world who knows most of the rooms are in disrepair because they haven't been used since Kerwin was alive and down here doing things he does finally find though a more modern room that has actual things from the ward mansion in it and he says okay this must be where charles ward has been hanging out he starts finding volumes of papers and lots of letters too and lots of letters from Orrin and Hutchinson who are yep. Joseph Kerwin's uh, co-conspirators they're sorcerers and they they've been alive for hundreds of years Joseph Kerwin knew them back in the 1700s he finds the bundle of Joseph Kerwin's papers that Charles had been so protective of that he found behind the painting in Kerwin's old house but he also finds new documents in Kerwin's hand and that's significant because at this point the character doesn't realize that Joseph Kerwin has killed Charles Dexter Ward and taken his place because he looks identical to Charles Dexter Ward. They have been assuming that uh, Charles 
Charles, this and this Dr. Allen that Charles has been hanging out with, who's this bearded, the spectacled stranger, mm-hmm. that they have both been imitating Joseph Kerwin's writing for some reason. Yeah. So I, he assumes that it's from them, but it is kind of off-putting to find modern stationery with this old archaic script on it. Mm-hmm. Now, he also finds this piece of mystical formula mm-hmm. in all of the writings that's repeated over and over. And it's cool in the text because there's actually little illustrations in here. Yeah. The old hermetic kind of symbol, you know, obviously Lovecraft did a little bit of research and found these symbols, but then he added in a bunch of his own stuff. Specifically, an odd name, Yogg-Sothoth. That's right. One of the symbols is the dragon's head. Yes. And it looks like a pair of uh, earbuds. And then uh, the dragon's tail, which is the descending node, he says, uh-huh. that looks like a pair of upside down headphones yeah <laughs> that's kind of what it looks like it does and those are over two incantations both of which mentioned Yogg-Sothoth one of them is obviously it's called the ascending one and one's the descending one so they're kind of counter spells or something like that right but Willett sees them so much he just kind of starts repeating them under his breath to himself and learns them essentially yeah. from reading them so often because they're important obviously now we should not forget that the whole time that he's in here looking through these papers there's this terrible whine echoing yeah through the corridor, some kind of terrible, monstrous, well, he doesn't know what it is, unearthly yeah. sort of sound. That seems terrible to me. How can you be looking through papers and researching stuff when uh-huh. somewhere there's like a wounded animal down there? Uh-huh. I don't you know. Yeah, it's I don't. It's impossible to know what it is. I suspect that he knows what it is. If not on a conscious level, on a subconscious level, he knows what's down there. Yeah, you're right. And he is trying to push it out of his mind. I mean, at least that's how I read it. I think you're right. There's too much research for him to take all of it. He grabs the most recent stuff because they need to help Charles, and and he assumes that whatever's most recent is going to be, is going to tell them something about his condition. Specifically, he takes the bundle of Kerwin's papers, and then he decides he's got to find the laboratory. Really, this is his first pass on the whole place. He's thinking, we'll get back down here and really break it apart later. So he keeps going. He emerges into this very vast space. But it's got these monoliths in it, almost like Stonehenge. It's almost like a big ritualistic... Yeah, and there's a... There's a... a, um, yeah, there's the ritualistic pillars, and then there's, there's kind of a, a raised, almost like an altar at the center of it, which has got dark uh, stains on the top of it as, you know, it's like, like it's a kind of blood sacrifice. Evidence of murder. <laughs> also, there's these cells that have wrist and ankle bonds. Yeah, absolutely. It's, like, it's like some kind of Tower of London thing down there. He gets so freaked out by the monolithic things. He, he sees them. He sees the, that there are these strange inscriptions on them. You know what? I'm not going to really check this out too much right now. But the sound is much louder here. And the terrible smell that had come up when they opened the manhole to go down there initially is really potent. He sees that there are these wells with covers on them in mm-hmm. the floor. He's got a flashlight. Right, right. With some difficulty, wrenches the cover of one of these things off. When he does it, the, whatever's in there gets more excited and erratic. Yeah. That's so disturbing. He tries to look in there, and he, he sees, like, some movement. Doesn't really see what what's down there very well. Yeah, something's flopping and, and, and screaming and getting more excited, especially when the light gets shown on it. And that first look, he doesn't really see it, and, and then he says, all right, I'm going to lean over, really push the torch down there. I'm, I'm going to see. I'm going to take a second look and uh, see what it is. And he's really sorry that he did. <laughs> it is hard to explain just how a single sight of a tangible object with measurable dimensions could so shake and change a man. And we may only say that there is, about certain outlines and entities, a power of symbolism and suggestion which acts frightfully on a sensitive thinker's perspective and whispers terrible hints of obscure cosmic relationships and unnameable realities behind the protective illusions of common vision. In that second look, Willett saw such an outline or entity, for during the next few instants, 
He was undoubtedly as stark mad as any inmate of Dr. Waite's private hospital. He dropped the electric torch from a hand drained of muscular power or nervous coordination, nor heeded the sound of crunching teeth, which told of its fate at the bottom of the pit. He screamed and screamed and screamed in a voice whose falsetto panic no acquaintance of his would ever have recognized. And though he could not rise to his feet, he crawled and rolled desperately away over the damp pavement where dozens of Tartarian wells poured forth their exhausted whining and yelping to answer his own insane cries. He tore his hands on the rough, loose stones and many times bruised his head against the frequent pillars, but still he kept on. And at last he slowly came to himself in the utter blackness and stench and stopped his ears against the droning wail into which the burst of yelping had subsided. Man, that is great. The thing about it that I, I imagine is the falsetto panic. He's going, ah! like he's screaming so high and the things are yelling back at him. They're all freaking out. Everything's freaking he, out. All he's in the dark. He can't see anything. Completely black. He drops his flashlight. The thing eats it, you know, or crunches it up or breaks it or does something. Does and it's something just to it. Screams in the darkness. Hideous. Oh, I love that scene. It's so amazing. You know, he's there in the dark trying to deal with what he saw. He finally sort of comes to he starts to think back on some of the things he's read in, in Orn and, and Hutch's letters that talk about unfinished things that they've called up, used for some kind of ritualistic purpose. It's ghastly. Well, eventually, Willet crawls his way and uh, wanders around in the darkness until he figures out his way back to the first area. That's a great moment because he's totally in the dark, but he does manage to see some light back from where he was, where he had lit some candles. Yes. And he, but it's dangerous in there. He only opened one pit, but who knows what else is lurking around oh, in there. So God. he's got to creep very slowly towards that light but the candles and the lanterns are going out one by one in the other room yeah light is dying it's oh god it's a horrific horrific moment so good though finally he gets back to that modern room where you know a final candle is burning and i love it there where he just grabs a bunch of matches and a bunch of candles he's just filling his pockets with this stuff like that's not gonna happen to me He gets back to the room that he was in before, gets re-equipped, re-lit up, and then he has to continue his search, look in other parts of this underground complex to find this lab. I think I'd be out of there after that, but he mans up. He says, I still got to find the lab. As he's traveling back through, I think he even has to pass the monolith and everything again, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still hearing that anguished howling. Well, anyway, he finds the lab. There's some evidence of Kerwin's old lab instruments from the Georgian period, Mm -hmm. but then there's also new things there. There's not much to learn from just what's in that lab, but there's an archway within that he goes through, and there he finds a chamber with rows of jugs and bottles on shelves and a a table in the middle. Everything's sort of cataloged with numbers, and then there's a a book that denotes who these belong to. Right. They're they're the remains of, of, of people. One side of the jugs are classified as custodes, and then the other side, materia. Custodes is Latin for guards, and materia is... For materials. Materials. Right. And they're separated, and, you know, he thinks about things he's read. Well, okay, the guards, the ones that are eating off their heads which right. oh some listeners wrote in about that and i think they concur with you chris that that's just a it's a figure of speech they're not literally eating anybody's heads off but they eat so much right that it it's good not to keep them around because it draws attention because you got to keep ordering all that cattle and everything like right, that. So it's right, just right. It's, a, it's a figure of speech you were you were right about that okay cool there's the guards on the one side and then the materials on the other which i assume are the these are the people that he was calling up to torture and interrogate so wait uh, so so he used like for the guards then what are these potential guards 
Or does he use them as guards and then break them again back down to their essential salts and then summon them up when he needs them again? That's what I assume. That they're yeah. bent to his will somehow, so he calls them up and down at will. Oh, okay. I think. I don't know. I guess I it mean, makes sense. Well, I mean, yeah. at the end of the story, we find out that it's relatively easy to call somebody back down. <laughs> right. It is. If you know the right words, you can yeah. do it. And these drugs, you know, they're full of that bluish, you know, non-adhesive powder. He actually right. puts some in his, his hand, I believe, and then it doesn't stick to his palm. It's so fine and uh, otherworldly in a way. Mm -hmm. He's got all the thinkers on one side. He's got all the brutes on the other. At the further end of the room in a little door, there's a crude sign chiseled into it. It's a symbol, but it kind of bugs him because he's seen it before. A friend of his had once drawn it on some paper and said it means some kind of things in the dark abyss of sleep. It's called the sign of Koth. Dreamers will see it on a certain black tower. He doesn't say too much about it, but the friend that told him about it, Randolph Carter. Yep, there you go. Tying it together. Yeah. Lovecraft stories, you know, there's there's the, that link and stuff together. So Willet is friends with Randolph Carter. Dream Quest and this are tied up. Yeah. These two novels. Well, he goes through that door, and the room beyond, it's a small room. There's a table, chair, and then there's weird machines with clamps and wheels. Willet goes, wait a minute, those are torture devices. Those are medieval torture devices. Yeah. This is really kind of an S&M crazy dungeon. <laughs> he lights a lantern, and so you can see in there, there's a big pentagram in the center of the room, floor. Mm -hmm. Which, you, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny because sometimes I'll... When people make Lovecraft adaptations, they'll mix in this sort of Satanism and, and that sort of thing. And I'll go, eh, I don't really like that because it's got religious connotations and his stuff is so otherworldly. But boom, there it is. I mean, yeah. I, it does make sense with the rest of this since he was talking about Eliphas Levi and that sort of thing, that he's tying in those kind of symbols. I mean, he's just right. grabbing a little little bit from everything. But that's yeah. so cool. I always, a big pentagram in the middle of the room, always good. Yeah. This is like the raising room. This is where the this is where things happen. Yeah, this is where people are brought back from the dead, from their essential souls. This is where the magic happens, literally. A terrible accident happens in here with Willie. Clearly, something was going on in here when they came to get Charles to uh -huh. take him to the asylum. He was in the middle of something in this room because one of the jugs from the shelves is emptied out on the table. Uh, the tag on the jug is 118. Now, he's, he doesn't have the catalog with him, so he doesn't know what that is. Right. Also on the walls... There are older versions of those incantations that he had been muttering under his breath. They obviously were carved there hundreds of years ago. They're less clear, you know, they're, they're sort of more phonetic, not as refined as the incantations he learned. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if Kerwin over time has really perfected the best way to say these things. So as he's looking at the incantations, he starts repeating what he memorized already to himself, the ascending node of that incantation has an effect on the powder on the table. Right. Starts giving forth like this cloud of greenish black vapor mm -hmm. when he says it. And Willet looks at it and he thinks, oh, what did I say? I was saying the first, I was chanting that first of that pair, the ascending node. What did I do? The doctor reeled and through his head raced wildly disjointed scraps from all he'd seen, heard, and read of the frightful case of Joseph Kerwin and Charles Dexter Ward. I say to you again, not call up any that you cannot put down. Have ye words for laying at all times ready, and stop not to be sure when there is any doubt of whom you have. Read talks with what was therein inhumed. Mercy of heaven, what is that shape behind the parting smoke? He accidentally raised something up? Yeah, he just called somebody up. That's crazy. It's that easy. <laughs> well, it was difficult to get here. Yeah, I mean, obviously... It was all set up, ready to go. Kerwin did all the work, and it was just, you know, he didn't. He just had to do the final last little bit of triggering. That's almost uh, an Evil Dead sort of accident, though, you know? I'm just going to oh, play right. this tape recorder. What did I do? <laughs>
Lovecraft does a great thing here. We don't get any details. That's the end of that section. The next part starts with Willett saying he doesn't repeat to anybody what he saw down in those catacombs. No, he doesn't because tell they won't take him seriously. But what happened was he passes out after that happens. He doesn't know exactly right. what happened. He doesn't spoke. Yeah, Mr. Ward doesn't hear from him that night. Obviously, he's wondering what happened to his friend. He doesn't hear from him the next morning, so... He goes out to Patuxet to see what's up, and he finds Willet there in the in the in the house. Ward wakes him up and gives him some brandy. And <laughs> when he when he looks at Ward, he says, "Ah, that beard, those eyes, God, who are you?" Which is a strange thing to say because Mister Ward doesn't have a beard, and he's got nice blue eyes that are yeah. easy to look at. He's got the bluest eyes. It's it's such a strange strange thing. So something carried him up, laid him down. His papers that he had collected from down there are gone. And man. They go down to the basement to see where the opening is down in the. It's catacombs. gone. It's totally sealed. It's not. It's, it's sealed. Totally up. gone. It's almost like the whole thing was a dream. It's not as if somebody had built something over. It's just there's no opening any anymore in the floor. Something crazy supernatural happened to just make that go away. Will it says to Ward, "You you saw that? I mean, you oh you were there when we opened. Yeah. The man like I'm not crazy, right? Ward says no. So Will it says, "All right, since you know I'm not crazy, here's the lowdown. Here's everything I saw down there." And Ward says, "Well, should we?" big yeah and they say it seemed hardly fitting for any human brain to answer when powers of unknown spheres had so vitally encroached on this side of the great abyss i thought that was a great sentence yeah and um and they're right you know what no we shouldn't dig no clearly somebody that knows a lot more about what's going on than we do thought it would be best if, if it gets closed up so we should probably just Go go with that. But there is one last clue that Willett finds in his pocket when he's, you know, he reaches in for, I don't know, a piece of gum or something, and he finds uh, a little message in there. Yeah, and it's not it's not in English. It's in scrawled in this ancient language, and he's not even sure what it is. It's some kind of really archaic writing, but it's on a modern piece of paper. It's just it's like on a post-it note or something like that. Something exactly. That, who wrote this, and if it's a newish piece of stationery, why is there this ancient writing on it? Well, they get out of there. They just tell the driver... Take us for some dinner, and then we got to go. We got to do some research. We got to hit the library. Mm -hmm. They go up to the, the John Hay Library on the hill, and they look into what this writing is. Mm -hmm. In the Dark Ages, they still used Latin, but it was a very corrupted form of it. Right. So it's uh, people who read and study Latin from the Roman era actually have trouble with some medieval Latin because it all runs together. They it's, And it even says here that it's... Uh, the words were in such Latin as a barbarous age might remember. So it's 8th or 9th century AD. Mm -hmm. And it, it says, uh, Corvinus necandus est, cadaver aqua forti dissolvendum, neca liquid retinendum, take ut potes. Which roughly translated is, Kerwin must be killed, the body must be dissolved in aqua fortis, nor must anything be retained. Keep silence as best you are able. Peace out, bitches. No, it doesn't. <laughs> That'd be awesome if it did. So it's it's actually just like that postscript in, in Charles' letter. Dissolve the body in acid. Don't burn it. So whatever they called up, I mean... It, he's, a, he's a good guy, almost. Or at least somebody that doesn't like Kerwin. Right. Yeah, you know, any 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 uh, enemy of Kerwin's is a friend of mine certain kind of thing. The ward gets word that the detectives who were researching Dr. Allen for them have some conclusions and that they're going to come the next day to brief him on what they found out. But before... That happens. Ward and Willett go to see Charles in the mm -hmm. hospital. Willett's like, I'm just going to lay it out for him and see how he reacts. He does. And uh -huh. Charles gets more and more pale as he's laying it all out. The way that Charles is reacting, he's like, all right, my discovery was real. Like, this stuff actually happened. He talks about the things in the pits. And he's real indignant. Like, I can't believe you left those things down there. You know, they must have been starving ever since you were taken away to the hospital. Yeah, how could you do that? And Charles kind of laughs about it and says, <laughs> Damn, they do eat. See, but they don't need to. That's the rare part. 
A month, you say, without food? Oh, Lord, sir, you be modest. Do you, <laughs> do you know, that was the joke on poor old Whipple with his virtuous bluster. Would kill everything off, would he? Why, damn, he was half deaf with the noise from outside and never saw or heard aught from the wells. He never dreamed they were there at all. Devil take you, those cursed things. I've been howling down there ever since Kerwin was done for 157 years gone. Oh, man. That is horrific. <laughs> the pure oh. breadth of that torture. Because there was a detail earlier where the, the pits are so narrow that whatever's in there can't even lie down. Yeah. You know? So it's they're just flopping these half-formed things. They're flopping around there, starving oh. in the dark for hundreds of years. Oh, my gosh. It's so... Oh, so disturbing. When Willett mentions the dust that he found, Charles slash Kerwin finds that amusing as well. Glad you found that, but you should be glad that you uh, didn't call it up because it was number 118. And if you'd done that, I think you'd be uh, <laughs> you'd be pretty <laughs> shooken up by it. You know, Willett says, well, actually, you know, actually, I did do it. And I don't think you, it's who you think it is. And he, he kind of flashes him the note that he got. And uh -huh. for the first time, I think Kerwin is scared. Yeah. Freaked out. It's a little bit out of his control. And whoever he brought up is somebody that knows what the hell's going on. Of course, that causes him to faint, even. Oh, right. Yeah, he does faint there. Yeah, we get a Kerwin fainting. Kerwin that's when faints. Things, yeah, that's when things are really dire for the villain, when, when he's the one who does the fainting. There's no clue in here, by the way, who 118 is. Yeah, if that's something we missed reading. I didn't get... Uh, and I think that's probably intentional that you don't know exactly who this guy is. Unless, of course, we just missed it. And, and in my reading about this story, I didn't see anything about mm -hmm. it. So. I don't think we're supposed to know. In fact, we, you know, Willett says, hey, remember from the letters of yours that I read that nine out of ten gravestones have been switched. So you got to be careful about who you call up. I don't think it's who you think it is. Mm -hmm. Badass mystic from the past. And in fact, he's so badass. So, you know, Willett's interested in what happened to Orrin and Hutchinson. So he's got a service that collects press clippings for him. And he soon finds out shortly after this happened that there was a total wrecking of a house, the oldest quarter of Prague. Uh -huh. And there's an evil old man in there called Joseph Nadek who uh, had dwelt there for as long as anybody could remember. So that's Simon Orrin. Dead. And then there's a Titan explosion in the Transylvanian mountains. Castle of Renzi's gone yeah kaboom i love that i mean so this medieval i i'm very impressed this clearly this risen guy is much better than Kerwin because he in a very short amount of time i mean this went the first thing he did was wrote a note in i mean the best way he knew how to express himself was in medieval latin mm -hmm. shortly thereafter he somehow got some public transportation out to european countries mastered some explosions now i mean he could just be a wizard and he's zapping around the world you know yeah, yeah, blowing he, things up i don't know yeah who knows but... he could be totally naked he doesn't even have clothes he's just like teleporting you know you know using like a mobius uh, continuum or something and like just oh yeah and, uh, yeah maybe he's just zipping around the planet and just dealing just, with stuff yeah shooting eldritch beams out of his hands blowing up buildings yeah with all that power he's i'm gonna let will it deal with Joseph Kerwin. Yeah, that's a little strange, though. It did, that thought crossed my mind. I'm like, well, why didn't he just go deal with Kerwin really fast? But I guess he decided... Yeah, they're in the same town. Yeah. He gave instruction, and then he took off to deal with the other guys. So maybe if nothing had happened, he would have come back and right. had his own reckoning. But as it is, the detectives come the next day to talk about Dr. Allen. And if I were them, I would have been a little embarrassed, because they really don't have many facts that these guys don't know. They have nothing. Know. People didn't like him. His beard looked fake. <laughs> you know, maybe he had a scar on his forehead above his eye. And of course it looked fake because it was. But because of that, even though it's not really new information, that is when Willett and Ward have their Clark Kent Superman moment. Wait a minute. <laughs> have we ever seen these guys in the same place at the same time? And my favorite thing they do is they go, all right, go back to the people you talk to that have seen Dr. Allen and bring them this. And they 
draw a beard on a photo of Charles. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, is this him? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's him. All right. Ah, but why did you black out his teeth and put horns on him? too? You know, it's so funny that they draw on the They really finally put it together. They remember that day that Charles left secretly, but then came back and there was that struggle. He has figured out that Kerwin killed him and he goes back to the house because he knows if he killed him in the house, he's, his body's got to be there still. Will it truly becomes heroic here? He's been um, an emphatic, caring kind of researcher, and he did take a chance by exploring those catacombs. But at this moment, it's when he says, I, I'm going to save this family from having to deal with what really is happening. And I'm going to deal with it all myself, which includes burning a body here. Yeah. He sneaks back into the house finds Charles's body. He says, hey, I'm going up in the library. Don't bother me up there. He looks around. We hear him sort of yelp from within the library. And then he calls for the men to bring up some firewood because there's a fireplace in there. While they're doing that, he goes and he gets some things in a covered basket that he brings down from Charles' lab, which maybe are some acids or some Mm -hmm. kind of instruments to cut this body up. Pretty soon, there's some pretty noxious smoke coming out of the fireplace, coming out of the chimney. That seems like such a sad moment, you know? He's in that library alone burning this boy's body so that the family doesn't have to know just from a psychological standpoint you know when you lose somebody and something i mean he's really been struggling with this for a long time and in the you know what he comes to is that charles you know died horribly and he has to hold that he can't talk to anybody about that he really is trying to spare everybody the horrible knowledge that he has he's taking that whole burden on to himself i mean obviously it would be very difficult for everybody if they saw the body and then realized there was this stranger in the asylum and how people would process that or be able to understand it. I mean, it's just better, he assumes, if for the family. I can't put them through this, so he takes care of the body. Now, after he's done that, he kind of collapses for a couple of days. He goes home, and it's rough on him, although one night he does sneak out. There's another article from those really good journalists (laughs) north end ghouls active again well they think that maybe it's these same people who've been delving around in the cemetery but it's pretty obvious that what will it took charles remains well he puts them in in the plot that is like the ward family plot so that charles you know he does it so that charles's remains will be buried with his family and he writes a letter to mr ward and says i'm gonna go see charles tomorrow and he's gonna escape i don't want you to think that because he's escaped that somehow he's gonna return to you safe and sound he's got a really bad there's some a really wrong thing with him. Uh-huh. All I can tell you is that you can feel safe in a year to go lay flowers at his grave and it's going to be at your plot. And he's going to uh, be there. He's going to be dead. He's not overtly saying what exactly happened, but right. you know, Ward knows what's going on with all this wackiness. With uh, wackiness. <laughs> with all the, you know, necromancy and you know, he he's been following along, so he knows that something really bad has happened and yeah. Willett's just saying, "Look, I, I know you know something fishy's going on, and I'm just going to lay this out for you, and it's going to be best if you just take what I say as truth, even though it's not the truth. Right. But just deal with this, and I trust and, that I've taken yeah, care of it. And then he does his final bit of badassery, and he heads back out to the asylum to confront Charles <laughs> yeah, slash Kerwin. Even though Ward slash Kerwin is, to the last, defiant and sort of cruel, you can tell that he's a little afraid of Willett at this point. Yeah, but he, I mean, he tries to still be snarky with him. You know, he's like trying to be like a, you know evil mastermind kind of guy. Yeah. And, oh, and you're out digging again and finding some of my starving pets. <laughs> and and, yeah, and then he says, "Well, mm, I've been digging up some other stuff 
I found some I found some glasses. I found a beard. And he's like, oh. Yeah, that's a great moment because Kerwin goes, oh, do they look any better than the ones you got on your face? Burn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Ah, burn. <laughs> Moted. Yeah. And Kerwin even admits it. He's like, hey, so maybe a guy wants to be, maybe it serves his purposes to be twofold. Who doesn't put on a disguise every once in a while? <laughs> and Willett's like, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> A person doesn't have a right to do that if they shouldn't even exist in the first place. And Kerwin's like, well, okay. What do you What do you want with me? What have you found? Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you going to be able to explain? And then he says, well, you know, I found I found a body uh, in a cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the body of Charles Dexter Ward. And I know that you killed him. And I know that he called you up and you were the vampire crawling around. You were out drinking bloods and stuff. Yeah, Lyson. Being red for three months. I know everything that you did. And then the concluding section is, is, is really great. You were a fool, Kerwin, to fancy that a mere visual identity would be enough. Why didn't you think of the speech and the voice and the handwriting? It hasn't worked, you see, after all. You know better than I who or what wrote that message in minuscules. But I warn you, it was not written in vain. There are abominations and blasphemies which must be stamped out, and I believe that the writer of those words will attend to Orne and Hutchinson. One of those creatures wrote you once. Do not call up any that you cannot put down. You were undone once before, perhaps in that very way. And it may be that your own evil magic will undo you all again. Kerwin, a man can't tamper with nature beyond certain limits, and every horror you have woven will rise up to wipe you out. But here the doctor was cut short by a convulsive cry from the creature before him. Hopelessly at bay, weaponless, and knowing that any show of physical violence would bring a score of attendants to the doctor's rescue, Joseph Kerwin had recourse to his one ancient ally and began a series of cabalistic motions with his forefingers as his deep, hollow voice, now unconcealed by feigned hoarseness, bellowed out the opening words of a terrible formula. Per Adonai, Elohim, Adonai, Yehovah, Adonai, Saboth, Metroton. But Willet was too quick for him. Even as the dogs in the yard outside began to howl, and even as a chill wind sprang suddenly up from the bay, the doctor commenced the solemn and measured intonation of that which he had meant all along to recite. An eye for an eye, magic for magic. Let the outcome show how well the lesson of the abyss had been learned. So in a clear voice, Marinus Bickner Willett began the second of that pair of formulae, whose first had raised the writer of those minuscules, the cryptic invocation, whose heading was the dragon's tail, sign of the descending node. Ogthroth, Eif, Gebel, E. Yuxathoth, Nagain, Aishro. At the very first word from Willett's mouth, the previously commenced formula of the patient stopped short. Unable to speak, the monster made wild motions with his arms until they too were arrested. When the awful name of Yogg-Sothoth was uttered, the hideous change began. It was not merely a dissolution, but rather a transformation or recapitulation. And Willett shut his eyes lest he faint before the rest of the incantation could be pronounced. But he did not faint. And that man of unholy centuries and forbidden secrets never troubled the world again. The madness out of time had subsided, and the case of Charles Dexter Ward was closed. Opening his eyes before staggering out of that room of horror, 
Dr. Willett saw that what he had kept in memory had not been kept amiss. There had, as he had predicted, been no need for acids, for like his accursed picture a year before, Joseph Kerwin now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine bluish-gray dust. And that is the end of the story. That is the end of the story. Woo! That's a great... <laughs> that's a great ending, man. That is a it's... great ending. Except Joseph Kerwin now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine bluish-gray dust. He says there's no need for acids. There's not? He called him down. Mm-hmm. Couldn't if somebody knew if somebody collected the you know swept it up? Couldn't oh. they call it? When you put somebody's essential salt, if it's like spread all over a room, you're not going to get all the complete salts again. So if you try and bring Kerwin back, he's going to be like mutant Kerwin. That's even more horrifying. Oh uh, well, no, he's going to be a gibbering. He won't be able to do his magic and stuff. He's powerless. And mm-hmm. and plus, who's going to do that? Who's going to sweep up the dust and do the ritual? And it's not going to happen. I'll think of a way. It just seems like a Universal <laughs> Monsters kind of thing to me, where they stake Dracula or Frankenstein gets fro. You know, it's like right. the next. You know, the next story is going to be Kerwin versus the Wolfman or something like well, that. Ch- Chad, don't hope for a sequel. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> we got to call Lovecraft up so he can write it, man. There you go. Well, you know who who could have come by? Tony. Yeah, exactly. Tony, Tony would be high. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. With uh... he comes in, he's dressed like an orderly. Exactly. He's got a little. He's got a little broom, and, uh, you know, he sweeps it all up, puts it in a little jar. You don't see his face, and then, mm-hmm. you know, as he's sweeping it up, he kind of makes it one big pile, and he turns around, and it's Tony. You know, that... Yeah, because the detectives even said they couldn't find him. Yeah, they couldn't find Tony. So, boom, there it is, man. There you go. There's your sequel. So, that was a long journey, man. Uh, so, a little, little background on this story. It was never really finished. It didn't get published until after his death, and R.H. Barlow got the transcripts and started to kind mm-hmm. of put it together, but it was August Erleth, and laundry that took this first draft of the story and kind of hobbled it together and fixed it up and you know made it into a full story so this lovecraft wrote this and then just kind of stuck it in a drawer so this is probably just a first draft of the story it's funny because uh kadath was also that way yeah but it and it had holes in it i mean there were things wrong with it because of it being a first draft but this is very narratively concise and yeah and everything makes sense now i'm sure on a couple of more passes it could have gotten better well i don't know i mean i love this book i love it i love it i think it's it's one of my favorite horror stories of all time well that's all we really have to say about the story we're we're running a little long here yeah that's it Um, (laughs) yeah we we wanted to get it all we wanted to get it all in five episodes worth of stuff yeah Yeah, exactly i do want to mention that the case there's a new edition of the case of charles dexter ward coming from the university of tampa press there'll be a hardback edition out a couple of weeks from now it's got uh, some annotations from st joshi and our friend donovan looks over at hplovecraft.com which we use constantly as a source of information it's a great one provided some photographs uh, at the end of the book titled Lovecraft's Providence. If you guys want to get a good edition of this, wait for it. We'll put a link up to it when uh, when it comes out where you can buy it. it. It's basically the most complete version you can get with all of the notes from Joshi and, and the great photographs and everything. So I want to make sure we get that out there. I want to thank Matt Foyer once again for reading for us. It was a long journey. He did a hell of a job. Really He's appreciate a superstar. It. That guy's great. Thank you so much, man. Unfortunately, we were already planning a hiatus around this time yeah. uh, before what happened happened, and we had to take some time off. So 
we're going to be coming back uh, real soon. We're, we're probably going to skip a week or possibly Just, two. But we'll be we'll be coming back with a color out of space. We'll be having color Andrew Lehman space? back. Yeah, Andrew Lehman's coming back to read for us. That's, That's the right. next door. Color out of space. Exactly. And from then on, it's just a run of great stuff. We've got Whisperer in Darkness coming up. We've got Shadow of Ren's Mouth coming up. Just a lot of great stories, and we'll be at full throttle bringing it to you every week once we come back. It's going to be good stuff, man. I'm really excited yeah. about it. We've also got some new promotions that are going to be coming up. And Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We've got some yeah. excited. I'm excited about the new stuff, and um, yeah. hopefully we'll, we'll announce that. Well, I think we can go ahead and announce that. Not now. Yeah. <laughs> In two we'll weeks we'll announce know, it, yeah. Yeah, we'll announce our promotions. Uh, we've got some plans for a couple of different projects. And uh, it's going to be a really exciting fall for us. I want to wish everybody a happy Halloween. Everybody yeah. be safe out there trick-or-treating. and uh, X-ray your candy. Yeah, X-ray. <laughs> X-ray. And watch out for waves of vampirism. You know, maybe I'll be Joseph Kerwin for Halloween. 17th century uh, Joseph Kerwin or 18th century well, all... Joseph Kerwin or 20th century <laughs> Joseph Kerwin. All you really need to do is look a little sick and then put a little scar over your eye and you're done. And then get mad at people when they don't know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joseph Kerwin. Look at my eye. God, you're just as dumb as Dr. Willett. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm uh, Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HP